Part Two, Chapter Nine of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Instead of returning to the city on Monday, Daylight rented the butcher's horse for another day and crossed the bed of the valley to its eastern hills to look at the mine. It was drier and rockier here than where he had been the day before, and the ascending slopes supported mainly chaparral, scrubby and dense, and impossible to penetrate on horseback. But in the canyons water was plentiful, and also a luxuriant forest growth. The mine was an abandoned affair, but he enjoyed the half-hour scramble around. He had had experience in quartz mining before he went to Alaska, and he enjoyed the recrudescence of his old wisdom in such matters. The story was simple to him, good prospects that warranted the starting of the tunnel into the hillside. Three months' work, and the getting short of money, the layoff while the men went away and got jobs, then the return and a new stretch of work with the pay ever luring and ever receding into the mountain, until after years of hope the men had given up and vanished. Most likely they were dead by now. Daylight thought, as he turned in the saddle, and looked back across the canyon at the ancient dump and dark mouth of the tunnel. As on the previous day, just for the joy of it, he followed cattle trails at haphazard and working his way up toward the summits. Coming out on a wagon road that led upward, he followed it for several miles, emerging in a small, mountain-encircled valley where half a dozen poor ranchers farmed the wine grapes on the steep slopes. Beyond, the road pitched upward. Dense chaparral covered the exposed hillsides, but in the creases of the canyons huge spruce trees grew, and wild oats and flowers. Half an hour later, sheltering under the summits themselves, he came out on a clearing. Here and there, in irregular patches, where the steep and the soil favored, wine grapes were growing. Daylight could see that it had been a stiff struggle, and that wild nature showed fresh signs of winning. Chaparral that had invaded the clearings, patches, and parts of patches of vineyard, unpruned, grass-grown, and abandoned. And everywhere old stake-and-rider fences vainly striving to remain intact. Here at a small farmhouse surrounded by large outbuildings, the road ended. Beyond, the chaparral blocked the way. He came upon an old woman forking manure in the barnyard and reined in by the fence. Hello, mother, was his greeting. Ain't you got any menfolk around to do that for you? She leaned on her pitchfork, hitched her skirt in at the waist, and regarded him cheerfully. He saw that her toil-worn, weather-exposed hands were like a man's, calloused, large-knuckled, and gnarled, and that her stockingless feet were thrust into heavy man's brogans. "'Nary a man,' she answered. "'And where you be from, all the way up here? Won't you stop and hitch and have a glass of wine?' Striding clumsily but efficiently, like a laboring man, she led him into the largest building, where daylight saw a hand-press and all the paraphernalia, on a small scale, for the making of wine. It was too far and too bad a road to haul the grapes to the valley wineries, she explained, and so they were compelled to do it themselves. 
They, he learned, were she and her daughter, the latter a widow of forty-odd. It had been easier before the grandson died, and before he went away to fight the savages in the Philippines. He had died out there in battle. Daylight drank a full tumbler of excellent ricling, talked a few minutes, and accounted for a second tumbler. Yes, they had just managed not to starve. Her husband and she had taken up this government land in 57, and cleared it and farmed it ever since, until he died, when she had carried it on. It actually didn't pay for the toil, but what were they to do? There was the wine trust, and wine was down. That ricling? She delivered it to the railroad down in the valley for twenty-two cents a gallon. And it was a long haul. It took a day for the round trip. Her daughter was gone now with a load. Daylight knew that in the hotels, ricling, not quite so good even, was charged for at from a dollar and a half to two dollars a quart, and she got twenty-two cents a gallon. That was the game. She was one of the stupid lowly. She and her people before her, the ones that did the work, drove their oxen across the plains, cleared and broke the virgin land, toiled all days and hours, paid their taxes, and sent their sons and grandsons out to fight and die for the flag that gave them such ample protection that they were able to sell their wine for twenty-two cents. The same wine was served to him at the St. Francis for two dollars a quart, or eight dollars a short gallon. That was it. Between her and her hand-press on the mountain clearing, and him ordering his wine in the hotel, was a difference of seven dollars and seventy-eight cents. A clique of sleek men in the city got between her and him to just about that amount. And besides them, there was a horde of others that took their whack. They called it railroading, high finance, banking, wholesaling, real estate, and such things. But the point was that they got it. Well, she got what was left, twenty-two cents. Oh, well, a sucker was born every minute, he sighed to himself. And nobody was to blame. It was all a game, and only a few could win. But it was damned hard on the suckers. How old are you, mother? he asked. Seventy-nine, come next January. Worked pretty hard, I suppose. Since I was seven, I was bound out in Michigan State until I was woman-grown. Then I married, and I reckon the work got harder and harder. When are you going to take a rest? She looked at him, as though she chose to think his question facetious, and did not reply. Do you believe in God? She nodded her head. Then you'll get it all back, he assured her, but in his heart he was wondering about God that allowed so many suckers to be born, and that did not break up the gambling game by which they were robbed from the cradle to the grave. How much of that ricling you got? She ran her eyes over the casks and calculated. Just short of eight hundred gallons. He wondered what he could do with all of it, and speculated as to whom he could give it away. What would you do if you got a dollar a gallon for it, he asked. Drop dead, I suppose. No, speaking seriously. Get me some false teeth, shingle the house, and buy a new wagon. The road's mighty hard on wagons. And after that, buy me a coffin. Well, they're yours, mother, coffin and all. 
She looked her incredulity. No, I mean it. And there's fifty to bind the bargain. Never mind the receipt. It's the rich ones that need watching. Their memories being so infernal short, you know. Here's my address. You got to deliver it to the railroad. And now, show me the way out of here. I want to get up to the top. On through the chaparral he went, following faint cattle trails and working slowly upward till he came out on the divide and gazed down into the Napa Valley and back across to Sonoma Mountain. A sweet land, he muttered, an almighty sweet land. Circling around to the right and dropping down along the cattle trails, he quested for another way back to Sonoma Valley. But the cattle trails seemed to fade out and the chaparral to grow thicker and with a deliberate viciousness, and even when he won through in places, the canyon and small feeders were too precipitous for his horse, and he turned back. But there was no irritation about it. He enjoyed it all, for he was back at his old game of bucking nature. Late in the afternoon he broke through and followed a well-defined trail down a dry canyon. Here he got a fresh thrill. He had heard the baying of the hounds some minutes before, and suddenly, across the bare face of the hill above him, he saw a large buck in flight, and not far behind came the deer hound, a magnificent animal. Daylight sat tense in his saddle and watched until they disappeared, his breath just a trifle shorter, as if he too were in the chase. His nostrils distended, and in his bones the old hunting ache and memories of the days before he came to live in the cities. The dry canyon gave place to one with a slender ribbon of running water. The trail ran into a wood road, and the wood road emerged across a small flat upon a slightly traveled country road. There were no farms in this immediate section and no houses. The soil was meager, the bedrock either close to the surface or constituting the surface itself. Manzanita and scrub oak, however, flourished and walled the road on either side with a jungle growth. And out a runway through this growth, a man suddenly scuttled in a way that reminded daylight of a rabbit. He was a little man in patched overalls, bareheaded, with a cotton shirt open at the throat and down the chest. The sun was ruddy brown in his face, and by it his sandy hair was bleached on the ends to peroxide blonde. He signed to daylight to halt and held up a letter. If you're going to town, I'd be obliged if you'd mail this. I sure will. Daylight put it into his coat pocket. Do you live hereabouts, stranger? But the little man did not answer. He was gazing at daylight in a surprised and steadfast fashion. I know you, the little man announced. You're Ellen Harnish, Burning Daylight, the papers call you. Am I right? Daylight nodded. But what under the sun are you doing here in the chaparral? Daylight grinned as he answered, drumming up trade for a free rural delivery route. Well, I'm glad I wrote that letter this afternoon, the little man went on, or else I'd have missed seeing you. I've seen your photo in the papers many a time and I've a good memory for faces. I recognized you at once. My name's Ferguson. Do you live hereabouts? Daylight repeated his query. 
Oh, yes, I've got a little shack back here in the bush, a hundred yards, and a pretty spring, and a few fruit trees and berry bushes. Come in and take a look. And that spring is a dandy. You've never tasted water like it. Come in and try it. Walking and leading his horse, Daylight followed the quick-stepping, eager little man through the green tunnel and emerged abruptly upon the clearing, if clearing it might be called, where wild nature and man's earth-scratching were inextricably blended. It was a tiny nook in the hills, protected by the steep walls of a canyon mouth. Here were several large oaks, evidencing a richer soil. The erosion of ages from the hillside had slowly formed this deposit of fat earth. Under the oaks, almost buried in them, stood a rough, unpainted cabin, the wide veranda of which, with chairs and hammocks, advertised an out-of-doors bedchamber. Daylight's keen eyes took in everything. The clearing was irregular, following the patches of the best soil, and every fruit tree and berry bush, and even each vegetable plant, had the water personally conducted to it. The tiny irrigation channels were everywhere, and along some of them water was running. Ferguson looked eagerly into his visitor's face for signs of approbation. What do you think of it, huh? Hand-reared and manicured every blessed tree, Daylight laughed, but the joy and satisfaction that shone in his eyes contented the little man. Why do you know? I know every one of those trees, as if they were sons of mine. I planted them, nursed them, fed them, and brought them up. Come on and peep at the spring. It's sure a hummer, was Daylight's verdict, after due inspection and sampling, and they turned back for the house. The interior was a surprise, the cooking being done in a small lean-to kitchen. The whole cabin formed a large living room. A great table in the middle was comfortably littered with books and magazines. All the available wall space from floor to ceiling was occupied by filled bookshelves. It seemed to daylight that he had never seen so many books assembled in one place. Skins of wildcat, coon, and deer lay about on the pine-board floor. Shot them myself, and tanned them too, Ferguson proudly asserted. The crowning feature of the room was a huge fireplace of rough stones and boulders. Built it myself, Ferguson proclaimed, and by God she drew. Never a wisp of smoke anywhere, save in the pointed channel, and that during the big southeasters. Daylight found himself charmed and made curious by the little man. Why was he hiding away here in the chaparral, he and his books? He was nobody's fool. Anybody could see that. Then why? The whole affair had a tinge of adventure, and Daylight accepted an invitation to supper, half prepared to find his host, a raw fruit and nut-eater, or some similar sort of health faddist. At table, while eating rice and jackrabbit curry, the latter shot by Ferguson, they talked it over, and Daylight found the little man had no food views. He ate whatever he liked and all he wanted, avoiding only such combinations that experience had taught him disagreed with his digestion. Next, Daylight surmised 
that he might be touched with religion, but quest about as he would, in a conversation covering the most divergent topics, he could find no hint of queerness or unusualness. So it was, when between them they had washed and wiped the dishes and put them away, and had settled down to a comfortable smoke, that daylight put his question. Look here, Ferguson. Ever since we got together, I've been casting about to find out what's wrong with you. To locate a screw loose somewhere, but I'll be danged if I've succeeded. What are you doing here, anyway? What made you come here? What were you doing for a living before you came here? Go ahead and elucidate yourself. Ferguson frankly showed his pleasure at the questions. First of all, he began, the doctors wound up by losing all hope for me, gave me a few months at best, and that, after a course in sanatoriums and a trip to Europe and another to Hawaii. They tried electricity and forced feeding and fasting. I was a graduate of about everything in the curriculum. They kept me poor with their bills while I went from bad to worse. The trouble with me was twofold. First, I was born a weakling, and next, I was living unnaturally. Too much work and responsibility and strain. I was the managing editor of the Times Tribune. Daylight gasped mentally, for the Times Tribune was the biggest and most influential paper in San Francisco, and always had been so. And I wasn't strong enough for the strain. Of course my body went back on me, and my mind too, for that matter. It had to be bolstered up with whiskey, which wasn't good for it any more than was the living in clubs and hotels good for my stomach and the rest of me. That was what ailed me. I was living all wrong. He shrugged his shoulders and drew at his pipe. When the doctors gave up, I wound up my affairs and gave the doctors up. That was fifteen years ago. I'd been hunting through here when I was a boy, on vacations from college, and when I was all down and out, it seemed a yearning came to me to go back to the country. So I quit, quit everything, absolutely, and came to live in the Valley of the Moon. That's the Indian name, you know, for Sonoma Valley. I lived in the lean-to the first year. Then I built a cabin and sent for my books. I never knew what happiness was before, nor health. Look at me now, and dare to tell me that I look forty-seven. I wouldn't give a day over forty, Daylight confessed. Yet, the day I came here, I looked nearly sixty, and that was fifteen years ago. They talked along, and Daylight looked at the world from new angles. Here was a man, neither bitter nor cynical, who laughed at the city dwellers and called them lunatics, a man who did not care for money, and in whom the lust for power had long since died. As for the friendship of the city dwellers, his host spoke in no uncertain terms. What did they do, all the chaps I knew, the chaps in the clubs with whom I had been cheek by jowl, for heaven knows how long? I was not beholden to them for anything, and when I slipped out, there was not one of them to drop me a line and say, How are you, old man? Anything I can do for you? For several weeks it was... What's become of Ferguson? After that, I became a reminiscence and a memory. 
yet every last one of them knew I had nothing but my salary, and that I had always lived a lap ahead of it. But what do you do now? was Daylight's query. You must need cash to buy clothes and magazines. A week's work or a month's work now and again, plowing in the winter or picking grapes in the fall. There's always odd jobs with the farmers through the summer. I don't need much, so I don't have to work much. Most of my time I spend fooling around the place. I could do hack work for the magazines and newspapers, but I prefer the plowing and the grape picking. Just look at me and you can see why. I'm hard as rocks, and I like the work, but I tell you, a chap's got to break into it. It's a great thing when he's learned to pick grapes a whole long day and come home at the end of it with that tired, happy feeling instead of being in a state of physical collapse. That fireplace, those big stones. I was soft then, a little, anemic, an alcoholic degenerate with the spunk of a rabbit and about one percent as much stamina. And some of those big stones nearly broke my back and my heart. But I persevered and used my body in the way nature intended it should be used, not bending over a desk and swilling whiskey. And, well, here I am, a better man for it, and there's the fireplace. Fine and dandy, huh? And now tell me about the Klondike, how you turned San Francisco upside down with that last raid of yours. You're a bonny fighter, you know, and you touch my imagination, though my cooler reason tells me that you are a lunatic like the rest. The lust for power, it's a dreadful affliction. Why didn't you stay in your Klondike? Or why don't you clear out and live a natural life, for instance, like mine. You see, I can ask questions, too. Now you talk, and let me listen for a while. It was not until ten o'clock that daylight parted from Ferguson. As he rode along through the starlight, the idea came to him of buying the ranch on the other side of the valley. There was no thought in his mind of ever intending to live on it. His game was in San Francisco. But he liked the ranch, and as soon as he got back to the office, he would open up negotiations with Hilliard. Besides, the ranch included the clay pit, and it would give him the whip hand over Holdsworthy if he ever tried to cut up any didos. End of Part 2 Chapter 9